as we were here about uh, a month ago, three weeks or so. Uh, just to update you on our family situation, um, I think I might have mentioned uh, about three weeks ago that Kay was hoping to get into university in Benigo. Well, he was given an offer, so uh, he's accepted that, so that's great. And he'll be um, taking in the July intake uh, for a teacher's program, a program in education. We heard from Claire yesterday. She video chatted us and she's having a, a great time. She's really being stretched. She's involved in a camp that our mission puts on uh, over in uh, Pennsylvania. And uh, this week, uh, there are six different camps, plus another week in the middle where she has a break. But uh, this, uh, this past week, it was a camp. It wasn't a, a huge one. Not on. Should be on. Are we coming through? No. It's a different one here. Oh, okay. It should be on. Yeah, we've got a green light. Yep, okay, so good, thanks. Okay, so uh, there was a, a camp uh, about 40 year nine, along with their leaders, 40 year nine students, and... Um, it, it simulates the, the mission process of um, uh, arriving in the country on a plane, uh, having luggage uh, gone through and uh, papers checked and passport checked and all that sort of thing, right through to the end of um, where working with the people, teaching them and so forth. So, uh, yeah, she said it's great. Uh, she had a really good week. She's having a rest today and then uh, tomorrow there's, there's a, a larger camp of 80 um, for, for the week, so uh, she's been stretched, uh, but um, it's really good for her, and uh, yeah, she's hoping the Lord can use her. Uh, just another thing I need to mention too, and that is when we were here three weeks ago, or whatever it was, uh, we didn't have any prayer cards. We've got them now, they're on the back table, uh, or in the foyer, if you want to take one, you're, you're welcome to on your way out. Okay, I think that's all I need to mention today. All right. Sometimes you can really get things wrong, very wrong. During the 1930s and 40s, doctors were instructed to keep premature babies in incubators and enrich the air with high levels of oxygen. It was thought that this practice would benefit the babies owing to the fact that their lungs weren't fully developed. Now, the intentions of the experts who recommended this uh, particular practice and the doctors and nurses that carried it out were good. They were thinking that um, they would help the baby, that, that they were wanting to assist the babies. However, they were making a very serious mistake because in 1954, a paediatrician here in Victoria, over in Essendon, discovered that this practice can cause blindness. And before it was stopped, this serious mistake led to about 10,000 individuals worldwide being blinded. Now, other people at various times have also made serious mistakes while at the same time thinking that they were doing something good. 
They were making an error of judgment, doing or thinking something that they thought was right when it was actually very wrong. Now, today we're going to look at another example in which uh, people made a serious mistake while at the same time thinking they were doing something good. But the number of people who made this particular mistake is far higher than those in the first example that we looked at. And the consequences are also far more serious. And in fact, people in all places and all cultures around the world today are still making this particular mistake without knowing it. And so it's a crucial matter that needs to be addressed. Now, what is the mistake that many people, or should we say most people around the the world, are making without realising it? Well, it's an issue involving the matter of righteousness. And in particular, how to become righteous before God. And Paul is acutely aware of this issue and he addresses it in the book of Romans. We're going to turn there and see what he has to say about this issue. You'll find it at the beginning of chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. This issue of righteousness, how to become righteous before God. Just before we read the first verse there, let's uh, pause and ask God to help us as we look into his word. Father, we pray this morning that as we look into your word, into your words that Paul has penned here in, in the New Testament, we pray that the Holy Spirit would guide us. He would give us spiritual illumination as to what is being taught what is also being warned against as well. Please, Father, speak to our hearts. For those of us who are Christians, strengthen our faith. For those of us who are not yet Christians, help us to realise what the situation is that we face, what the way is to become righteous before you. I just pray, Lord, that you help me, guide me also, and uh, help me to present this as clearly as I can. So we just commit this time to you and each person listening this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well the first thing we read in this chapter is that Paul expresses his concern for Israel. We'll see that in uh, in the first verse of chapter 10. He writes, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Now that is a very significant statement that Paul makes there. Paul begins his discussion of the topic of righteousness by linking it to the matter of salvation. He says he has a deep concern for many of his own people because they are not saved. They do not have salvation. Now, what does the term salvation actually mean? Well, generally speaking, in the Old Testament, the term salvation relates to some kind of physical preservation. 
It has a sense of being rescued from a real-life situation in which there's danger. It's often used in the sense or in the context of conflict or war. For example, in Psalm 51, sorry, Psalm 54, verse 1, when David was uh, fleeing from Saul, he asked God to protect him from Saul. And he writes, save me, O God, for strangers have risen up against me. So he's saying he needs to be rescued from some kind of danger. Now, a more contemporary example would be like what happened to Saeed, who was an Iranian believer that I recently met up in Sydney. He was a member of a large group of refugees making a boat trip from Indonesia across to Australia. There had been three groups of them, three large groups of them. The first group set out and they perished. Saeed was on the second boat that that left a few days later after the first contact with the first boat had had been lost. They set out with no food whatsoever and very little Uh, very little water between them. And uh, when they got to somewhere in the middle of the ocean between Indonesia and Australia, the engine of their old boat broke down. And Saeed thought that he was going to die. They were adrift there and he was sure that he too was going to die. And so he, along with many others on that boat there with him, needed to be saved. They needed to be rescued from the terrible danger that they were in. So that's the Old Testament sense of the term salvation. It it has a sense of uh, the need to be delivered, rescued or saved from some sort of physical danger that the person or the people are in. Now in the New Testament... The word includes that idea, but its meaning is expanded to include a spiritual sense or a spiritual dimension. Sometimes it refers to the act of being rescued from the threat of physical harm, but more often it's used in in relation to being rescued from the threat of spiritual harm or spiritual danger. Especially from the threat of being banished by God and punished by him eternally as a consequence for sin. This is a judgment that the Bible warns us about. And it's also a very real danger that initially all of us face. And it's one that requires a definite act of deliverance or salvation in order that this terrible event doesn't come about. And if you're not yet saved, this is a very real danger that you still face. The danger of being excluded from the presence of God and punished by him eternally as a consequence for your individual disobedience toward him. So in this chapter, Paul begins his topic of uh, righteousness by linking it to the matter of salvation. And this means that 
It's a topic, this topic of righteousness is a topic that is absolutely crucial that we understand it and that we get it right. Okay, so he speaks about the fact that he has a a deep concern for his people, his people, other Israelites, because um, they're not saved. Okay, well next he speaks about the reason why his people are not saved. And he says, namely, they were misunderstanding something. And what was it that they were misunderstanding? Well, it was how to become righteous in God's sight. Paul says they were mistaken about that. They didn't get it. Listen to what he says as we read on there in in verses 2 through to verse 4. He writes, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believeth. So first, Paul contends that many of the Jews were trying to establish their own righteousness. They were thinking that being right before God was basically a matter involving the way they live and the things they do. And so if their speech and behaviour was of a high standard, they thought that they were okay, they would be fine, things would work out all right. And so with that kind of thinking, what did they do? Well, Paul says they really devoted themselves to keeping the law. That's the Mosaic law. They did that because the rules governing the way they were supposed to live were contained in that law. And because that law came from God himself, they thought that if they followed it, it was a sure thing. They would be accepted by him. Now, Paul said not only did the Jews try to keep the Mosaic law, but they went about it with zeal. They took it very seriously, much more so than what you or I do. They observed all of the ceremonies and the rituals of Judaism uh, very carefully and they added a whole lot of extra laws and regulations as well to the ones that Moses gave because they thought that those extra laws were like safeguards or safety rails that would help to keep them within the Mosaic law. They thought if they put up all those extra regulations and observed those, they'd be well within the laws that Moses gave them. And so they had all these laws and traditions that they followed, thinking that their lives would be of such a good quality that they would be assured of being accepted by God. Now, not only did they devote themselves religiously to keeping the law, but they also devoted themselves to guarding the law. We know that from our knowledge of the Gospels. Pharisees and scribes would scout out around the countryside and go into the synagogues on the Sabbath days and listen to the new rabbis, the young guys, teaching the people in the synagogues. They 
they, they wanted to make sure that the, the teaching of these young fellows and uh, teachers that would teach was in harmony with the traditional approach to the passages that they taught. And they were very intolerant of anyone that stood up before a crowd that gathered in the synagogues and taught otherwise. Very intolerant. So they not only devoted themselves to keeping the law, but they also devoted themselves to guarding the law. And this was the thinking of the majority of the Jews in Jesus' day. They thought that the way to be righteous in God's sight and therefore to be being saved was basically a matter relating to how you lived. And so they went about trying to establish their own righteousness. Now, this sort of thinking is not restricted to people belonging to Paul's culture, but it exists across the world in all cultures today as well. One individual who uh, lives in a hamlet not far from us at Aura provides us with a good example of this sort of thinking. His name is Guy, which coincidentally is similar to the English name Guy. Back in the 1990s, before we moved into Aura, Guy thought that he'd come up with his own way to become righteous before God. He planted a grove of trees at his hamlet and then he put two lines of posts in front of that grove of trees. And those posts had carvings on them, a bit like totem poles. And then between those two rows of posts, he put a maze of sticks on the ground, sort of just like a a maze that you would see in in a puzzle. And it looked very impressive. It looked very impressive. In Guy's thinking, that maze on the ground and the whole setup had some sort of power associated with it. And in a little bit, I guess it was like a cathedral with his relics, his holy relics, uh, inside it. Now, Guy was aware of the Ten Commandments. That's another story. But he said that God had given him four new commandments and those four commandments that God had given him replaced the original ten that he'd given to Moses. Now, one of those four commandments that uh, Guy said that God gave him was uh, a prohibition on the chewing of betel nut and the spitting of the red juice uh, that they do in Papua New Guinea on, on the ground in his hamlet. So that was one of the laws. Mustn't spit betel nut juice on the ground of his hamlet. Another one of the four laws uh, was um, related to the positioning of bodies when they're placed in graves, just the direction that they faced. Now, there are many other laws as well, actually more than four. Nevertheless, Guy called them the four commandments. And uh, he said that his setup was the way that God had given to him for the coal people to become right before God, to be to have a right standing before God. And if the cold people did the right thing by following those rules, they wouldn't be punished and things would go okay with them. 
Now, all that might sound a bit weird to, uh, to, to us, uh, but for the first five years of our time there at Aura, uh, many of the locals, including Sarpi, some of you would remember who Sarpi is, many of them thought that Guy was under something. They thought that that was very credible, what Guy was presenting. But it was actually just another illustration of the universal human tendency to think that we can be made right before God through the way we live and the things we do. Yes, this was the thinking of many of the cold people for a considerable period of time at Aura. It was the thinking of many people of Paul's day and it may be the thinking of some people who are actually here this morning listening to this message. Some people, some young people, or maybe not so young, may be thinking that doing right makes me right before God. Because I basically follow biblical guidelines and I should be covered. Things should be okay. God should accept me. I suspect there's a, there's a good chance that someone here might be thinking that way because this is the way that the majority of the people across the world today are thinking. Why would you be any different? It's just what people right across the world are assuming. The way we're made right with God is through the things we do, the way we live. But Paul says that people who think like that are making a big mistake because that is not the way it is. Well, we turn into Romans chapter 10. Paul was saying that many of his people, the Jews, were making a serious mistake by trying to establish their own righteousness. Now, why? Why were they doing that? What was the reason for that? Well, that leads to another contention that Paul makes about those people. And it's this. He says it it was because they were ignorant of God's righteousness. Look again in verse 3. We'll we'll see him say that there in verse 3. He says, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Now, in this case, the term righteousness of God doesn't refer to God's own personal righteousness or holiness, but to a righteousness that comes from him. The righteousness of God, the righteousness that that he gives, that comes from him. And so what Paul is saying is that there is another way to become righteous that the Jews weren't understanding. They didn't know about it. Paul's saying they were ignorant of it. Now, what was that way? Well, it's this. Earlier in the book of Romans, as well as in other places, but Paul says that if people will put their faith in Jesus Christ as their saviour, then God will forgive them and he will impute his own righteousness to them. In other words, he will declare them as being righteousness, as being right before him. It's like he gives them a standing of righteousness 
as a gift. And so as far as he is concerned, they are as righteous before him as what the Lord Jesus Christ is. Now that is very different to the approach that the Jews were taking. This approach doesn't say that right living leads to a right standing before God or that trying to keep God's rules will produce a righteousness that we require in order to be saved. No. What it does say is that belief in the work of Jesus is the key to having a right standing before God and being saved. So righteousness is based on the work of Jesus and it's given to those who will believe. And as verse 4 says, those who believe in Christ no longer have to try to earn a righteousness through their efforts to obey the law, for the righteousness they require has been given to them as a gift. So the, the work of the law is ended for those people. Now the Jews didn't understand this. They may have heard reports about the things about this that Paul had been teaching as he travelled around, but they didn't understand it. It was just, this, this thinking was just so foreign to the way that, that the Jews thought, to the Jewish mindset. And so by, by trying to establish their own righteousness before God through their law-keeping, they were actually rebelling against him. Not only that, but they were actually harming themselves because their efforts were keeping them from sensing their need for salvation. And as Paul says at the end of verse 3, it was also keeping them from subjecting themselves to the righteousness of God. Or in other words, exercising personal faith in Jesus and receiving God's righteousness, righteousness themselves from him. So, that's Paul's concern for his people. He's very concerned for them. He says they're not saved. The reason is because they're, they're going about trying to establish their own righteousness because they were ignorant of the righteousness that God offers to people as a gift. Now, in order to broaden our understanding of the need for this righteousness that comes from God, I'd like us to consider three other passages. And each of these three other passages that we're going to uh, fairly quick, look at fairly quickly this morning, uh, they related to this topic of imputed righteousness in some way. And in each case, I think we'll see that this concept of imputed righteousness or a righteousness which is received, given by God, received by man, can assist us to understand the passages. The first one is in Matthew 22. Now, as we, as we look at each of these passages, I am hoping that a light comes on in your mind as, as, you, as you consider this passage. Or you hear a bell. It goes, ding, oh yes, I get it. I, I see, I, I see now what that passage is on about. Okay, that's what I'm, that's what I'm hoping will happen this morning as we do that. So uh, the first passage that we'll look at, in light of what we've 
I've been looking at in Romans 10 is in Matthew chapter 22. Now, Paul wasn't the only one that uh, in the New Testament that addresses this matter of the importance of receiving the righteousness that comes from God. For Jesus also spoke about it. He saw it as being something that was absolutely crucial to the matter of a person's salvation. On one occasion, Jesus told a parable that addresses that topic, and it's called the parable of the marriage feast. It's a parable or a story about what happened when a king prepared a wedding feast for his son and sent servants out to invite people to come along and celebrate the occasion with him. Now, there are two parts to this parable. The first part describes how none of the guests that had been previously invited to the feast actually came. They didn't come. Now, that part of the parable is directed toward the Jews and it describes in in veiled terms how they refused the office of salvation that God made to them. Now, we're not going to look at that part of the parable this morning. That's, That's not our concern this morning. Instead... We'll look at the second part of the parable, and that begins in verse 8. So we're in Matthew 22, and we'll start reading at verse 8. Then saith he, okay, who's the he? It's the king. The king is speaking here, the king. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, How camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servant, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Okay, well let's just review uh, that that parable, what we just heard there. After the previous, previously invited guests, those real special ones that received special invitations, after those invitations went out and when the day came, when it was found that none of those guests wanted to come, then the invitation was opened up to anyone. Just a general invitation went out. And anyone at all who wanted to come could come. Anyone. Anyone. Now, because (coughs) the feast was one being provided by a king, which was a very special occasion, it would be a privilege to go and an honour. And many people went. People of all kinds came to see what it would be like. Those that had done good and those that had done bad. And Jesus said that the hall that the king had provided for the occasion, was filled with people. Filled with them. Now, because all of these guests had been rounded up fairly hastily, uh, they apparently hadn't had the opportunity to dress appropriately for the occasion. So the king himself, no, no, no problems, the king himself provided them 
with garments that would be suitable for the occasion. So they were really well cared for. It was a big day and these people were really well cared for. Now, sometime after things had gotten underway, the king himself came out to meet his guests. And as he looked around at the crowd, he noticed that one of the men was out of place. He stood out because he wasn't dressed for the occasion. He was still in his he was still wearing his old clothing. He had refused to wear the wedding garment that the king had graciously provided. And that was rude. That was denigrating the king. And so the king went and confronted him and asked him for a reason. He asked him to explain what was going on, but the man was speechless. He couldn't give a satisfactory answer. And so he was handed over to the security guys and he was not only put out of the hall, but he, he was also punished by the king or punished for insulting the king in such a way. Now, what was Jesus teaching through this part of the parable? Well, first of all, we need to notice this. The thing that determined whether people could remain at the wedding feast was not whether they had done good or bad in the past. That wasn't the issue. The issue was whether or not they were wearing the appropriate wedding garment. Now, through this parable, Jesus seems to be teaching that in order for people to enter God's kingdom and live with him for eternity, they need to stop seeking a righteousness of their own because a self-generated righteousness is like old clothing that is out of place in God's magnificent presence. Instead, they need to accept the righteousness that he offers because it's like a garment that he graciously and freely gives them to wear. And without that righteousness, they are out of place in heaven. They don't belong there and they won't be saved. And it's the same for us as well. If we lack that righteousness, then we too will not be saved. We will not be rescued from the spiritual danger that we are in. We won't be able to live with God in heaven. We will miss out, regardless of all the good things we've done, regardless of the the good way in which we lived, and regardless of our good backgrounds. So... Did a light go on then? Did a light go on then for that, in that section there? Okay, so the idea of an imputed righteousness is the key to understanding that. People need to receive a righteousness which is not their own. It's like a garment that is given to them as a gift by the king for them to wear. Number two, if we go to another passage. The idea of an imputed righteousness is also the solution to the problem that Jesus presented to his disciples in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20. I'd like to turn to that, uh, that verse. 
It's the solution to the problem there. Okay, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. It's a sermon on the mount. He says, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, have you ever puzzled over that one? Maybe in your quiet times or your devotions when you've read that verse? Has that ever bothered you? Have you ever thought about that? In those times, the scribes and the Pharisees were greatly admired by the the general population. People really respected those guys for their high standards of righteousness. People thought those guys, I mean, they are really committed. They stand out publicly and show their faith and they observe all the details, all the little details of the law. Those guys are really on fire for God. Maybe, but nevertheless... It was a self-righteousness. The righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees fell far short of what they required in order to be accepted by God. They were like wedding feasts attending the king's banquet in their old own clothing. And uh, therefore they were not acceptable What they were needing was an imputed righteousness, a perfect righteousness which is given to them freely by God. And you and I need that too. Our own self-generated righteousness isn't good enough. We need a perfect righteousness that comes from God himself in order to be accepted by him. Number two. Number three, Philippians chapter three. The idea of an imputed righteousness is also the explanation for the perspective that Paul described in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 to 9. Now, as um, Paul wrote the things that he wrote down in Romans 10 there about the Jews making a serious mistake, he was writing from first-hand experience. He knew exactly what was in the mind of those Jews that he was writing about. Because he too used to think exactly along the same lines. That was his thinking. He too as a young man had made the mistake of thinking that right living leads to a right standing before God. And because he he thought like that, he too had tried to follow follow the law and defend it as earnestly as he could. However, listen to what he writes later on as a Christian about all the different things that he used to do in order to to try to earn his salvation. In the scripture reading this morning, we we read those things. They were read to us uh, about all the things that uh, he was relying upon in order to gain acceptance with God. So we won't reread those. What we will do is read on. We'll go straight down to verse... Okay, we'll reread just verse 7 and then we'll read on. 
uh, verses 8 and 9. So verse 7 again, after all those things that uh, he had been uh, trusting in to earn his, his righteous, righteousness before God, he says, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but done, that I may win Christ and be found in him. Okay, now, be switched on. Don't, don't miss this. Let's read on. Don't miss this. Read on. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness. Which and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. There it is. Paul is speaking about two kinds of righteousness: a self-righteousness which is earned by paying close attention to the way you live, the things you do. And a God-given righteousness which is received as a result of you putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the early part of his life, Paul had made the mistake of thinking that it was possible to become right before God through right living. But then later on, he realised that trying to do that was futile because it doesn't work like that. It's not God's way. Righteousness is something that must be received from God as a gift. That's the, the lesson that Paul is, is um, wanting to uh, convey there in those verses. Okay, well, as we um, close and consider how we can apply all this that we've heard this morning, we could first ask ourselves, how does this concept of a received righteousness relate to the topic of missions? And the answer to that is that it screams for the cause of missions. Because the idea of requiring a righteousness from God in order to have acceptance with him is not something that people who don't have access to the word of God can reason out for themselves. No one sitting in a hut at Aura, looking out of the mountains and out of the river valley, can work that out, that out for themselves. It's not out there in general revelation. And it's the same for people sitting in a subway in Japan or a clothes-making factory in India or a university classroom in Iran. The idea of God offering to make people right before him on the basis of faith in the person and work of Jesus is special revelation. God had to reveal that to us through his word. And so therefore, it's something that needs to be communicated. It needs to be passed on. They will not see it out there in the mountains. They can see lots of things about God by looking at the mountains and a beautiful surf beach. They can work out how, how powerful he is and, and, and wise, and so, but they cannot work out the way to become righteous before him by looking out at those things. It's got to come from the word. It's something that, that has been revealed and it's got to come from someone that communicates it to them. And so the idea of, uh, of, of an imputed righteousness is something that just screams for the cause of missions and for the cause of evangelism as well.
And Paul touches on on this later on in the chapter, in verse 10 there, when he talks about, uh, he says, how can people hear of Christ and believe on him with the implication of, of receiving this righteousness and being saved unless other people are sent to them for the purpose of teaching these things to them? Yes, that's what people around the world in all cultures are needing. A righteousness which is alien to them. A righteousness that they can't earn for themselves. A righteousness that doesn't come as a result of the things you do, the way you live, the way you speak, your good background. It doesn't come through those things. It's a righteousness that comes from God as a gift to people who put their faith in the perfect work and person of the Lord Jesus Christ. They can only receive it if they first hear about who this Jesus is and what he's done in order to provide it for them. That's the first point of application, the application of missions. Oh, it, 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 it bears on missions head on. Imputated righteousness, head on, and evangelism. People have got to hear about these things. And secondly, a second way that we can apply what we've heard today is for each of us to ask ourselves this question. How is it with me? Are you absolutely sure that you have the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith in Christ? Or have you perhaps been thinking that you were probably on a right standing before God due to the good person you are, due to the good things that you've done, and due to basically the good background that you're from? If the latter, then having heard what Paul's written here in Romans 10... Do you now realise the distinction between these two kinds of righteousness and how crucial it is that you receive the one that comes from God and stop trying to build your own in order to be saved? Because that can't be done. You can't do that. The standards are too high. You must not continue to assume that your own righteousness will earn you a place in heaven. It can't and it won't. You cannot afford to be mistaken about this despite all your good intentions. It's absolutely crucial that we all have a good understanding of this and that we get it right. Justification and the righteousness that comes with it is by grace alone through faith alone. It's a gift that is offered to us. We cannot earn it for ourselves. We're asked to look away from ourselves and realise that forgiveness of sin and a perfect righteousness are offered, are offered, are offered on the basis of faith in the Lord Jesus. To hear of God's righteousness, to hear of the offer of God's righteousness and refuse it, is to insult him. It's to denigrate him and denigrate the the graciousness that he's offering to us. But to hear of it and receive it 
is to come into a right relationship with God and to receive eternal life. What about you? What about you? How is it with you? Are you really saved? Really saved, are you? Do you have the righteousness that God offers? If not, what about doing something about it today? Seek out someone that you know is saved. Pastor. Someone that you know, someone, a friend that you know is saved. You've got no doubts they are saved. And ask them to explain from God's word how to receive that righteousness, how to receive that forgiveness from God and to become one of his children. Receive eternal life and know for sure that you will go to heaven when this life is over. It is so, it is so crucial. People, the majority of people around the world in all cultures around the world today have missed it. They are ignorant of the, not just the Jews, people right around the world today are ignorant of the grace that is offered to them. Don't be one of them. Come out from them and you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone and his work alone to receive a right standing before God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for sending the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven to live a perfect life to die a death on the cross and bear the punishment that was owing to us and then to be raised again from the dead, to come back to life triumphantly on the third day after that. Thank you that when he came back to life, he is able to offer forgiveness and life to all who would put their faith in him. Thank you so much for the gospel. Thank you for the chance, for the opportunity to become your children, to receive righteousness from you and to receive eternal life at the same time. Oh Lord, help each one here this morning to know for sure, deep down in their soul, that they have that righteousness. They are in a righteous standing before you. And if not, then to, to humble themselves and to, um, to, to, to trust in Jesus alone for their salvation, to acknowledge it and to come to you for salvation trusting in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ alone for it. Thank you for your word, Lord. Please speak to the innermost parts of our souls to encourage the believers, to strengthen their faith and to uh, shed light on on those that are not yet trusting in Jesus as to uh, what their situation, what their true standing before you is and what it needs to be. We commit this into your hands, this work into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.